My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My First Million features famous guests like Alex Hermosi, Sofia Amoroso, and Hassan Minaj, sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. Sam and Sean recently sat down with Tim Ferriss to talk about his latest lifestyle experiments and how to spend a perfect 24 hours. You can find this episode and listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Science of Scaling podcast. My name is Mark Roberts, your host. Today we've got a gem. We've got Dino DiMarino, the CRO at Sneak. It's surprising to people who pursue PLG plays, product-led growth plays, that layering a sales organization, a go-to-market organization onto it is a critical success. I can't think of a single PLG unicorn that never had to do that. And Dino has deep experience in it. He's going to drop knowledge on that process, how it's different from sales-led growth, how you hire, pay, run the methodology, align the organizations differently so you get it right. Let's go on to the episode. Welcome to the show, Dino. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. Yeah, so um, gosh, Sneak's been an amazing ride and we want to unpack that. It's a pleasure to kind of get into your head on layering go-to-market on top of this PLG funnel. However, before we even do that, how do you even define PLG? You know, like it's it's like we used to call it freemium and you got free trials. You got like, there's a lot of different aspects to it. Like how, how did you, how do you think about that? And how did you define that at Sneak, which is probably a pretty important foundation as you came in? Yeah, I think that's a very good first step for any founder or organization to think through is before you start using the three-letter acronym, what does it mean to you? And there's a ton of a ton of research that founders and go-to-market leaders can do to get their definition relative to the product they're launching. But for us, Freemium is certainly one derivative of PLG, right? But a lot of our PLG has been focused on capturing the mindshare of application security professionals and developers with our freemium product, and then trying to provide an experience that allows them to at some level of small to medium scale acquire the technology. That's certainly part of our PLG definition. Other parts of it though, that we're exploring, you know, live around the indirect benefit of having your technology out in the wild, both for what I'll call personal use cases. So there's a lot of folks in the development community that that code on, on their own. They want to sort of experiment with different technologies. So they're using Sneak more PLG friendly. And I think as you go to maybe software or the financial services side of the house and the like, there hasn't maybe been the exploration or determination as to how easy or hard PLG will be, but certainly the likes of Atlassian, Datadog, GitHub, GitLab, they've all proven that um, there's a lot of selling that can be done with the product. But I do think that uh, you can only take it so far from a scale standpoint, and you can only unlock so much of your TAM without bringing sort of more a more formed sales and marketing strategy around it. But I'm, I'm certainly very pro PLG from my experiences at Sync. Hey folks, just Mark here. I, I want to point this out. You know, Dino said something along the lines of like, explore it, PLG. And it's really important to think about this. I mean, right now we're trying to figure out is PLG applicable to our category? How do we determine that? When in doubt, do it <laughs> for two reasons. Number one, if you don't and you scale to a million, five million, 10 million, it's so hard to go back to it. 
It's so hard to be sales-led growth and then go back to PLG. That's why PLG is exciting is because it's such a disruptive model. It's really hard to be selling something for like 10, 20, 30,000 a year and then start selling it for 50 uh, for, you know, and start it as free and carve out enough value to be free. So, you know, just it's kind of a one shot thing. And if you're not sure, try it. The other piece is if you're wrong, which I've had to do with some of our investments, then it's like, okay, let's, let's switch to sales led. And guess what? You're left with a really easy to adopt product and a pretty big demand gen funnel. So it's like, when in doubt, give it a shot. All right, let's get back to Dino. And we have to talk about layering the sales org in, which is quite a science yeah. and critical to not ruin the magic, but bring in this new function, which even just to start, like when I'd speak to first-time founders who are pursuing PLG, they almost think that if they have to add sales, they failed, right? They're like, I, yeah. that, if I have to add sales- We're like this crutch Right, now. like I'm, <laughs> I'm not good at product. And yet you and I were chatting and we're like, dude, can you think of any PLG unicorn that didn't eventually put sales in? Yeah. So this isn't a failure. I don't know. Can you explain that to the product founder? Like, why yeah. is it necessary as a synergy to create the, the true company? So I think it's really explaining that the concentric circles of your TAM just open up if you have the right go-to-market and marketing. I mean, those two have to be in lock and step. It's not one or the other. Leaders and people, which which I I got the pleasure of joining and inheriting um, on, my, on my team and within the marketing team, people that really understood it. They were educating me on PLG and, you know, us brainstorming on ways to sort of unlock it. Um, as we went forward. But but admittedly, when I joined, I think there was already an absolute understanding within Sneak that that go-to-market was, um, and, you know, maybe 49% of the product experience if the product itself was 51. Um, and in many cases, I, I think there are deals we went explicitly due to the people that are in front of our customers. So when you move into the enterprise, like the founders will start to see that there is there is this huge element that that relationships, you know, doing what you say you're going to do, having people that can guide you on the more sophisticated use cases along the way are really important to unlocking the product value. I think some of the folks um, in our marketing organization did a great job of educating me on the indirect and direct sort of benefits of PLG. So the direct benefit is, you know, what all the venture capitalists want to hear, uh, which is fair. They want efficiency, you know, rapid time to scale, great product telemetry. So there was a reaffirmation of these, I'll call it principles of PLG that they absolutely uh, retaught me or educated me further. I think it was the indirect elements of it, like all the benefits that we got as we looked at our demand funnel, which even to this day, I think every company struggles with, how do I actually attribute value to a freemium user that's, that's using Sneak at home for their own sort of personal use case? that then is a developer of Bank of America or an AppSec person of Bank of America, and they all of a sudden buy Sneak. So I think we are struggling in a lot. How can we sort of correlate that information? But we see it at scale, and it's anecdotally, but when we talk to customers, our prospects in at, that I've been involved with, with many of our enterprise uh, sales reps and leaders, that there has been an absolute benefit by this, this halo effect that the marketing team was educating me on. Hey folks, just Mark here. This indirect value that Dino's talking about, I think is really important. We don't think about it that much. You know, in a way, the marketing team saying like, there's some intangibles here. Like fine, like some, some person downloaded our product and started 
working with it in a garage project. They just so happened to be a senior technical developer at Bank of America. And that leads us into that account. Like, how do we measure that? I kind of say that as like brand. You know what I mean? Like, how do you measure the value of having that billboard there, running the the commercials for a month? Like, it's just it's just hard to do. And it's just that brand that's being built up. And the reason why that's important is in in our world of software and tech, it's hard to develop sustainable moats. It's hard to develop moats that are not easy for the competition to copy. And that's one of the nice things I like about PLG is like, when you spend years like Dino and Sneak did and getting this PLG motion right, getting folks to know about it and download it, some level of virality, the handoffs to the sales reps, like 10 engineers don't quit Google and just copy that. That is years of domain expertise that's a sustainable moat. And let's just make sure we appreciate that. All right, let's get back to Dino. If you have sales reps and leaders that don't embrace PLG, in the founder's defense, like it won't work. Like if you said that, like what is the one thing that you have to ensure as a founder you have, it's it's a leader who's at least curious enough to get as knowledgeable as he or she can around product lab growth, what it means, what are the levers. Um, because if you have somebody that's sort of a stubborn top-down thinker, uh, they'll never be able to unlock all the potential possibilities because for each company, it's going to be a bit different. That's a death trap for many PLG companies. We've both seen it where whether it's the board or the CEO or the founders, like sales is sales. But folks who've been there like yourself recognize that there's a pretty stark difference between the playbook. Can you help us understand that playbook? Yeah, I'll do my best. I think you got to hire people that know or want to know about it. Secondly, instrumentation matters and all of us are data junkies, but strive for perfection and, and gleaning as much useful data as you can to make good decisioning and know that in an ideal world, these two things make the company stronger. But there is, to your point, at a playbook level, it's got to be taught to the organization. Like our our founder and, and CEO, will, on a quarterly basis, we talk just about sort of the evolution of our PLG motion, what we're seeing, trends. So it's this constant education. And then the playbooks that sort of ride off that get pretty interesting and specific on account-based marketing. Because you'd think ABM, very top-down, but if you have enriched PLG data for your SDR team, like now you can curate a much better experience for the customer where they're not just getting bombarded with inbound email. You have context of maybe what they're using in the product or just by nature of the fact that we know there's some freemium users in the organization and we want to have, you know, a collaborative discussion around uh, some group sessions that, that we run. We run these stranger danger sessions, capture the flag. So you're able to curate an experience for the customer that isn't just like, let me give you a demo and try to sell you the product because you have this sort of bottom-up telemetry so it makes everybody better if you use it. People who study these, I think, definitely see that moment that you're talking about where it's like, if I can generalize, the, 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 the R&D organization gets this PLG funnel to like whatever, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 weekly active users. So there's this thing in there. And it's like, yep. it's like ice cream sundae day for like the first rep that gets to go in there. It's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yep. And you see different things. Like back in the day, they used to like wait like a week for the user to like adopt and like the product. And all of a sudden it gets to a point where it's like the minute someone hits like download, they get a phone call. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Is that one of the potholes? Is that bad? Do you need to avoid that? And how do you like, yeah. how do you prevent a rep from doing that? Usually what you're describing comes because there's scarcity of pipeline. You know, demand isn't um, as amplified as it was in, in sort of the COVID 2020, 21 digital transformation sort of two-year hype cycle. But we've been, to your point, very aware of not bombarding customers, at least trying to make sure that experience is positive and finding different routes in. When do you start building that? You know, it's like, I imagine, again, the first couple came in, they were just, this is amazing. I can't keep up with the number of people who are downloading and actively using our product. And at some point you hit a point where it's like that those downloads don't keep up with how fast you're growing the sales org. Did you like do that from day one? Did you have that first three reps? Hey, don't get addicted to this stuff. Make sure like 20% of your time <laughs> you're like cold calling. Or did you like have a different team doing that? Like when did you roll that out, that, that, that capability? We're, we're like everyone else. We're not perfect. We've gone through our fits and starts on it. So it was very, very much inbound PLG uh, focused to start. And it was probably early 21 where we really started to make an investment in a more traditional outbound motion. And it was a separate, it was a partner team, meaning the SDRs are, are part of sales and they, they work within what we call our sales pods. But they were doing a majority of the outbound work uh, with our channel being a small but important part of the demand funnel and still this PLG piece being a, a big, big part of it. And so what we've done since is we've tried to get some of our, what we'll call corporate, you know, we call them velocity uh, and growth reps to, to carry a bit more of the weight of the outbound prospecting. So there's been some change in approach there. Hence why I say we've been adjusting it as we go forward, but we did have a pretty functionally aligned structure where it was, you know, the SDR sort of owned that outbound motion. We had the PLG slash inbound motion sort of supplementing it where they were triaging it. They were typically higher quality ops and then getting it into the hands of the sales maker and the SE to sort of, you know, do further qualification, you know, in many cases, pilot through to, to purchase. We started with very much an inbound centric sales organization as, as many PLG companies do. And have since sort of evolved it to this balance for lack of better term. Thank you for being humble that like, hey, we don't all get these yeah. things perfectly. Like yeah. it never happens. Like what's your advice then going forward? Like, let's say you join the board of some really hot up and coming PLG company. They're at like, you know, five, 10 million in revenue. They're definitely not at this point yet. They've got like seven reps. There's plenty of free users. And yeah. like, Dino, should we, should we test another channel like Outbound and how? I think outside of the standard pod structuring and sort of building an efficient sales team where to your point, you got three or four sellers, you know, you've got too much demand, keep sort of filling that in so that you're not missing demand. Cause I know that happens to some organizations, but if you can hive off five, 10% of your capacity to say, look, there are some logical structures we should look at in go-to-market approach. And, and the concept of an outbound motion is very common. Like why wouldn't we take one of our markets and start experimenting and see what the difference is both from the rep productivity, the customer interaction, what does our conversion look like? Because you don't want to be faced with a flatline PLG pipeline. You've got a bunch of reps who are now starving out and you have no understanding of what it means to augment. So I definitely would encourage people to think openly about, you know, one or two other routes to market always. And even sneak that, we're looking at multiple routes as we scale beyond, you know, 200 million, hopefully to three, 400 plus. Hey folks, it's just Mark here. This is a tough one that Dino's going through. It's like, yeah, eventually we're going to hit that frontier where the demand from PLG doesn't keep up with how fast we're trying to grow revenue and how fast we're growing the sales team. So like, how do we integrate in this, this 
cool calling team like when and how. I mean, I, he's nailed it with the experimentation. Like we got to be in go to market experimenters just like product. And the question is, when do you run that experiment? I have no doubts that your first foray into outbound is an experiment. And this, the question is, when is it? The mistake most people make is like, okay, we're doing our next year planning and it's like, our board wants us to get to 60 million, but our PLG funnel only gets us to 45 million. And then they're like, all right, let's just start cold calling and we'll get another 15. Nope, that's bad. By the time you're signing up to 15 million contribution from cold calling, you better have run that cold calling experiment for at least two quarters and figure it out. So that's really the only question in my mind is, you know, look at all your potential budget and do you have budget to run a cold calling experiment, which is probably two SDRs and a rep. Do you have budget to pull them out? That's the time when you should do it. And if you're first on the sales team and like you have budget, do it because you're going to need it. And if you haven't run the experiment when you need it, you're kind of cooked. All right, let's get back to Dino. And then once we get past a lead to the opportunity stage, is that different in PLG? You know, like opportunity stage in sales led, a lot of documenting, you know, do yep. great discovery, do great disqualification, yeah. qualification, the best reps qualify out, you know, tailor your demo. And I feel like some newbies to PLG are like, oh, that's all gone. Like people already know your product, just show them the pricing page and they buy. Like is the opportunity stage different? We have found not really. So we start to measure it once it's fully qualified, a fully qualified opportunity as the same. So we almost, it's a funnel, right? So you get it to a certain stage, but many demand funnels, uh, and even my experience at Mimecast, they did a really good job at attributing channel MSP-led opportunities that were truly sourced. And it was very, very simple definition. You know, no opportunity in our CRM at the time that would count as a source stop. You had your MQL-based opportunities that were attributed to some of the marketing campaigns we were driving, and then full-blown sales, outbound-generated ops. But eventually, when they got to the qualified op level, you would still track the close rates on each, and it's the same at Sneak, like which which sourced which source type opportunity closes at a higher rate. But the journey for the customer has been pretty similar, rightly or wrongly, in both of my both of my experiences. And part of it is in both cases you're usually dealing with more than one technical buyer. And by proxy, they haven't tested the product, they haven't seen it. And you're almost letting them play catch up to maybe the PLG source of the opportunity, if it is a true PLG qualified op that that brought you to that stage. And so you might have the sales maker, if they're good, which hopefully they are, is like signaling in the buying process that, hey, look, Mark had been one of the people that brought us here. He used our product you know, in a, in a freemium capacity. But you've got 10 other people on a call where you're up at SC, you're having to do the same level of discovery, qualification, demonstration of value, and then through to closure. Yeah, big pothole alert. Big pothole alert here. People think that the sales motion is different. They think it's like, yeah, I mean, all the stuff I learned and like spin selling and Sandler and like discovery, qualification, needs identification. I don't need to do that. They already know what the product is. They've already educated themselves. As Dino's pointing out, it's not the case. They didn't find that and I've never seen it. I, I think like we overestimate how much the end user knows about our product. They stumbled across enough of it to get like one of their point use cases to go, but they don't understand the full premise. And more importantly, the end user and the buyer are often different, right? And so once we get to that opportunity stage, the sales process looks very similar. 
you know, Pete Caputo, one of our early sales leaders at HubSpot, slow things down to speed them up. And that's what we have here is we, we can't just assume that they're all the way, the way at the finish line like we'd see in a sales-led growth just because they've adopted the product and we have to model very similar sales methodologies as we see in that traditional environment. All right, let's get back to Dino. So we, we have not found that buying process once you hit that stage to be markedly different. And, and so as you think about org structure, does that mean like, you know, we've got obviously demand gen come from different places. We may have an SDR team that is focused on cold calling and an SDR team that's focused on setting appointments yep. with the peak, the product qualified leads, like the users. But does that mean that once we've set an appointment, that an appointment from a cold call versus an appointment from a user from the PLG funnel, that acts the same. So we shouldn't specialize the account executive. We should we should kind of just send appointments to them. Someone were cold. Someone we, from yeah. we've tried both. Okay, and which does we've better? We've tried both, and I'd say that I'd say that um, we don't have a great answer as to which which because there's so many other factors. Like we've, if you think about, you know, when I joined in sort of the mid 2021 time frame to today, the economy has changed. How we focus on our segments has changed. But we did for our SMB and mid-market business, we did have sort of the concept of in inbound and outbound uh, reps. So exactly as you're describing. And part of it was born out of this experimentation of like, hey, we can't just be inbound focused. We need to have this outbound muscle. Part of it was born out of the sales capacity. How quickly could we get it to ramp? So I'd say that we did it for maybe different reasons than it being a completely bespoke or different buying process for an inbound versus outbound lead or a PQL versus an outbound lead. Yeah, I think it's something, you know, I know we have really good data. It's actually something we should probably look at to see, was there a market difference between both? But our motive for doing it was maybe different than the journey is, is completely different for these inbound PQLs versus outbound leads. My First Million, hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My First Million features famous guests like Alex Hermosi, Sophia Amoroso, and Hassan Minaj, sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. Sam and Sean recently sat down with Tim Ferriss to talk about his latest lifestyle experiments and how to spend a perfect 24 hours. You can find this episode and listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. How about the rep themselves? When you think about like Mimecast and other sales-led growth, do you have a different hiring profile? Are you trying to find people who have a PLG experience? Does that matter? Is there, is there, I still yeah. like the differences in product, right? Obviously, Sneak's pretty, pretty technical buyer. I get that. But yeah. if you have apples to apples for everything else, you know, like price, target customer, you know, the buyer type, one's sales-led, one's PLG. Does that change yep. who you're trying to hire? I think uh, only if curiosity and an, a desire to understand PLG is not there. So if there's a sales rep, um, even in, in enterprise that that doesn't have some like interest and curiosity and in the interview process with our leadership isn't saying like, hey, I don't know anything about this, but I, I think it could unlock my business. Like if I hear those signals from somebody that I otherwise think is super competent, um, you know, is a hardworking, caring, aggressive person that's going to really help drive our business and success for our customers. And they don't know about it, but they want to know about it. To me, that's all right. I think 
If you have somebody that truly has this one playbook mentality, which you see from time to time, although admittedly, it's usually more on the enterprise seller side where you've got people that are somewhat stubborn in how they want to attack things because they've had success, then you know that might be a reason to, to look elsewhere in a, in a company that really values that PLG motion. I find with with SMB sellers, so many of them come from either our SDR team or you know the local community. PLG is becoming more and more top of mind. Most of them have like at least a 101 level understanding of it and really are just sponges to want to get educated more on how it becomes a lever for their business. And most of them also still, you know, although we, we oh, none of us love it, they still sort of enjoy the the celebration of sort of that, you know, taking an, an outbound prospect to a qualified meeting. Hey folks, Mark here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm also feeling Dino's pain here on like, do we specialize? Because of that, do we specialize the salesperson on outbound and have a different salesperson on leads that are coming from PLG? And it's a tough one, but I'm seeing a pattern here. And this is the pattern that I'm seeing is in the beginning, you do specialize. The reason why you do it is I'm an account executive. I got one appointment from PLG where there's five users and I'm talking to the decision maker and we already have five people at the company using our product. I get another appointment that's a cold call from an SDR. The first appointment is way easier. It just is. And so I'm kind of going to blow off the cold call appointment. And that way we're never going to figure out cold calling. So reps will always find the least path of resistance to get to their goal. And if we're giving them both inbound or PQL, product qualified lead generate appointments and cold, they're never going to figure out the cold. So to figure out this channel, we have to specialize the outbound salespeople in addition to the SDRs. However, as we progress, and I think this is where Dino's confusion came about, as the brand develops, that difference between the cold appointment and the PLG appointment, it becomes similar because everyone's hard to sneak. And even the cold appointment, they go, oh, yeah, we've tried you, yeah, that kind of stuff. So, so as you grow, the, the complexities of that specialization are no longer justified. And that account executive team um, can work any appointments. That's the pattern I'm seeing. I, I hope that you see it in your org too. Let's get back to Dino. Part of the pivot to to why we move from this inbound outbound SMB uh, growth motion to now having just a more traditional uh, SMB rep on the hunter side, sort of really trying to get us into new accounts because they still do some of their old cold calling and the ones that that have been successful are able to sort of do both, frankly. But those are, those are some things we look for. I do want to finish up, Dino, with if I can yeah. fairly look at the evolution of a PLG company through three acts of acquiring customers, where act one is typically that like humanless, you know, like we talked about, like you get, you know, you get 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 week active users. Your product engineering team gets fancy about these like five to $10 a month trip wires and suddenly there's some revenue coming in. And then the, the thing that we, yep. you've done so nicely to unpack was like, okay, we can actually do way more by introducing a sales team. And typically that is like an inside sales team, you know, we're paying them whatever, 120, 180, $200,000 a year. They're bringing in like whatever, 600, $800,000 of ARR. Their customers are kind of mid-market customers, like you talking about like 20, 30, 40K. That's act two. Yep. And that drives us a lot. And then there's this act three, which is like, wow, you know, our brand is big enough. Our product is stable enough. 
we've had enough funding that we can do things like SOX compliance and geo redundancy and all this stuff, we can sell million dollar deals to Fortune 100. But we yep. can't do it through our these Act One and Act Two. We have to new we have to do a new a third act, and that's something you had a big yep. part in. And we see in almost yep. all the big unicorns that have gone to five tens of billions of dollars in in market cap, they've introduced this third act. So can you tell us about that and what's what's different yep. about that third act? Yeah, th that that was being again experimented, incubated. You can see there's a theme here um, on how Sneak thinks of things, not just in go to market, but across the company. When I started, but it was one of the things when when I got here, like we we believed, and I think we were right that if you can get the Fortune 100 banks specifically when you're talking, and this is where it's very much dependent on what you are selling. So in our case, developer security technology. So developers are the users, AppSec ultimately the CISO is the buyer. If you can get CISOs and banks to validate that you have made a market difference in their security posture, and the developers hate you less or love you, as we like to joke, um, you're gonna you're gonna have lightning in a bottle as it relates to enterprise relevance. And so the thinking was, let's let's go and try to capture a few banks where we think there's enough willingness to engage with us. Because if you can get a Morgan Stanley, a City, a Barclays to become a customer, it validates that to your point, your security ready not only your internal controls like you nailed it SOC 2 type 2 even as you think about FedRAMP all these things help to amplify your brand as an organization that gets risk and security but it also then just opens up the rest of your TAM that in the case of Sneak we hadn't really exploited. Hey folks Mark here this Act 3 is so critical I mean seven years in oftentimes you talk to these PLG unicorns they're like yeah our enterprise business is like most of our business. It's growing faster than everything else. It's just an important act to get right. And Dino, fortunately, has a lot of experience in hiring these enterprise reps. I do find them to be quite different. When I ask people like Dino, those are the two things that are different than a mid-market rep is one, understanding the political dynamics of an organization. That's usually not necessary for a mid-market salesperson because there's not as many decision makers or influencers. And related to that, how they develop champions, how they truly develop champions. Great enterprise salespeople will say, the number one driver on whether I get a deal is not my product, not my technology, not my references, not my company brand. It's the strength of my champion. Is my champion stronger than the competitions? If you look at like, Lots of people use BANT as a qualifying matrix in the mid-market, budget, authority, need, timing. They evolve to medic in the enterprise. Metrics, economic buyer, decision maker, decision process, identify pain and champion. It's in there. And some people put a second C in, medic with two Cs, and it's the competitor's champion. That's why it's so important. And a big difference between those, those big strategic account sellers in the mid-market is their ability to develop that champion. All right, let's get back to Dino. The sort of two ways that the CRO, CEO, and founder should talk about it. Do we shoot for the moon or do we sort of take a stair-step approach? Admittedly, at Mimecast, we were much more iterative as we moved into the enterprise. Whereas Sneak, I think we had the luxury of building a modern platform that could scale. We had enough of the certifications where we shot for the moon on, on that segment, especially in banking, and had some good initial success. And now, you know, I have dozens of, of seven-figure customers giving us that sort of brand you know, I'll call it brand in the enterprise that maybe we didn't have a few years ago. Do you know, because you have so much experience here, you, you kind of brushed over like all these 
unique aspects of what a, an enterprise rep needs to do to close a million dollar deal? Because you have yeah. so much experience in it. But can you just give us like your top two, like picture that mid-market rep that you see the potential, like you can become a million dollar closer. What are like the top two or three skills that you have to teach yep. them that they didn't develop in the mid-market? Yeah, I think there's a healthy level of paranoia that your good enterprise reps have. We have been fortunate with the technology we have, the brand we have, but there's still lots of people that we have to market to in these large enterprises that are skeptics. So you need somebody that's paranoid, but humble enough to know how to build sort of bridges with some of the skeptics, you know, in, in certain sales models, you call them enemies versus champions. I think you need somebody that's got a bit of a vision, like a, like a founder does, as to how you take this initial opportunity and how do you walk it through? What are all the various stakeholders? In some cases, you're figuring out as you go. But as we understood sort of the playbook of where our champions and our detractors might be in a particular opportunity, the good sellers knew how to navigate that. And they still, you know, they knew how to build relationships and get on speed dial with these, both the technical and business executives that they were dealing with. Like at the end of the day, the deals that close like that, you need to have several people that will sort of take your call throughout the entire buy cycle. Um, and as I mentioned, you need that at organization, you know, legal, commercial finance, everybody that'll make the negotiation of those deals as, as painless as they can be. And they're never easy. And a rep who's sort of seen that it doesn't get panicked when, you know, you throw out an $8 million number, TCV number in front of the customer, they throw up all over it, knowing that, all right, we're probably going to land it for, doesn't mean that the deal's over. Uh, and I think that's something just that comes with mileage. Like a lot of the mid-market reps that work for us today will be CROs in the next five, 10, 15 years. At some of this is just, you know, at bats. And so having that enterprise seller that doesn't get frazzled by it, rattled by, you know, some pretty tough objectives, I think has been, you know, a big part of, of our success. Well, thank you for all this, you know, you know, PLG has been around for some time. I'm of the opinion that we're still in the early innings and that the disruptive yep. potential of this really exciting go-to-market model and broader business model, we have a lot ahead of us. You and I have both realized that we can't think of a unicorn that didn't run the playbook that you so nicely outlined for us of layering on go-to-market and not ruining the magic that got us to where we are today. So thank you yep. for helping us understand that. Congrats on your journey. And we appreciate you dropping knowledge with us today. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share. I always have to do it, but thanks, Mark, for having me. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Our show is edited by Pizza Shark Productions. Big thanks to HubSpot for startups and to the HubSpot Podcast Network for keeping the audio on. Hey, also, we're a new show. So if you like what you hear, or if you hate what you hear, leave us a rating and review over on your favorite podcast player. I love the feedback. Also, check out Stage 2 Capital. We're the first VC firm running back by over 500 CROs, CMOs, CCOs. So if you're an entrepreneur looking to scale your business, check out stage2.capital. All right, that's it for today. I'm Mark Robert. See you next week. 